Good morning, IBC family. You know, I really appreciate what our elder Jeff mentioned to us. Um, I too was equally um, amazed and grateful for the response, especially after his invitation. And, you know, I've seen the pattern in our consistent contributions by a couple of you. And, um, but this last week was pretty amazing. You know, I felt like I got to know Christ Church that much more. They know what's going on in your lives. And so, in fact, I'll be following up with a few of you because of that very fact, in a good way, by the way. So, I am reminded of this passage in Scripture, Second Chronicles chapter 7. Solomon has just completed the temple, the building of the temple, and he's dedicating it to the Lord And we see that God now speaks to Solomon, and he says this, if my people pray, who are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. It's a conditional invitation. If my people who are called by my name would do and act in this way, then God says, I promise I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I know that many of you are what we might identify or label as prayer warriors, but I look forward to the day in which all of us can adopt that label. Because I believe and I'm becoming more convinced of this in my own heart and life, that the greatest act or service we can do in ministry is to be people of prayer, to be on our knees, to be seeking the Lord, to be in full dependence because of our need for prayer. So I look forward to that. In fact, there are some ideas ideas circulating about how that might manifest itself in the most practical ways but I'll reserve my comments because there's still a few details to work out. I don't know how many of you were uh, um, watching the news this past week. Maybe you have become jaded by news, and so you've kind of tried to turn it off, and maybe some of you are addicted to news, and so you can't help but turn it on. But this past week, um, an unfortunate incident took place again, and And what's unfortunate sometimes in this incident that took place is that I'm not actually shocked in the same way anymore. Another gentleman decided to go into a school in Colorado and shoot it up again. And I'm not sure what comes across in your mind. I'm not sure what thoughts you think when those kind of things happen and no doubt I know we can easily get all political or whatever and I'm not even going there at all. I'm just saying this. Man, what are the families thinking right now? What are the victims that survived thinking right now? What are the parents of the people that didn't survive thinking right now? And then I get start thinking, what, what led to this point for this shooter? What consistent pattern was persistently growing and festering that ultimately led to act an act 
such as this. And then I look at my own heart, kind of like what Jody was describing. And this is in no way to minimize what took place this past week at all. But I realize that I too am a murderer. I've murdered people in our office. Not you, Mary. I've murdered people in, on my neighborhood. I've murdered people on the freeway especially. I've murdered everybody, not everybody, but every, some people in every political party. I've murdered people in my own church family. I've murdered people in my own biological family. I even murdered my own spouse. Now, because this is being recorded, I think I need to qualify what I'm just saying. No, I did not literally murder anybody. But, according to Jesus, I have in my heart. According to Jesus, I am guilty of a murderous heart. As Jesus himself says in verse 21 of Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it is said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In our passage this morning, we see or we get to uh, survey and understand more fully the first of six illustrations or examples that Jesus gives as, he, as we talked about last week, as he set the tone or set the theme for his sermon. And in chapter five, we have these six illustrations to talk about what in the world true righteousness is. After all, Jesus is helping us to to understand more fully and he's seeking to clearly establish what the righteousness of God is, what the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven really looks like. And so Jesus will have these kind of back and forth statements. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have grown up with this certain tradition, but let me help you understand more fully and more clearly what God desires of you. After all, the religious Pharisees, the ones who kept the law more more and better than anyone else, were just as guilty as anyone else. Although they kept the law probably more successfully than anybody else, Jesus is trying to help them understand, and all the disciples, everyone listening, understand what true righteousness is. In other words, what it means to be obedient to God, what it means to be righteous before God, has nothing to do with external obedience necessarily. In other words, it's not just about external obedience, but it is also about internal obedience, It's obedience from the heart, not just the external act. It's very easy to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, as we talked about earlier. In fact, it's common to do the right thing, even though your heart may not be conformed to wanting to do the right thing. And the Pharisees were 
classic in this. The Pharisees prided themselves, even thought they were acceptable by God because they were obedient externally. But that's why, as we have said before, they were like whitewashed tombs, seemingly pure on the outside, but on the inside, completely dead. And what Jesus is trying to help us understand is not just obedience really to the letter of the law, but he's really helping us understand the intent of the law or to understand the spirit of the law. It's not just about keeping the rules, but he's helping us understand God's heart and why we do what we do matters. And so Jesus elaborates on the spirit of the law and identifies the first of six illustrations, as I said before. It's interesting to note, kind of a side note, but I think a profound note nonetheless. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, listen to what Jesus is doing. He is actually claiming authority over the interpretation of scripture. You have heard it said, you have grown up with this certain tradition, you have known for many, many multiple generations, thousands of years, but let me tell you what it actually means. Let me help you understand more fully God's heart in this command. And so when Jesus says, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be liable to judgment, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So according to Jesus, and according to the spirit of the law, we see that murder is not limited to the literal act It's not limited to the literal act of taking someone's life necessarily, but it also includes one's attitude, specifically the attitude of anger. Again, as I've already kind of made clear, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, they all thought they were acceptable and therefore righteous before God because they kept the law. Like, for example, they did not violate the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, which says, this is the King James Version, thou shalt not kill. Well, I haven't killed anybody, so I can check that off my moral list. After all, I'm, now, I'm innocent of that one. I don't have to worry about that one because I am not, I'm not guilty of killing anybody. In fact, this is probably why Jesus actually focused on this as his first illustration because most of us in here would actually say, I'm not a murderer either. Hopefully all of us would say that, but if not, we would say, I'm not a murderer either, so I can check that off my moral list. And Jesus is helping us going, actually, you're not as innocent as you think you are. You're not as morally upright as you might think you are. And so Jesus teaches the the true intent, the spirit of this commandment that says you shall not kill and helps us understand that we are in fact not only guilty of this commandment, but we are deserving of punishment because of our guilt. Now perhaps you might be saying to yourself, wait, wait, So if I'm angry with somebody, I'm guilty, at least in a heart sense, of murder? Is that really what Jesus is getting at here? Does it mean that every time I'm angry with somebody, I'm guilty of murder? And the answer is, maybe. First, we need to understand the kind of anger that Jesus is actually describing here. 
This is our second point. What we see is that persistent anger toward another is the attitude of a murderous heart. Persistent anger or habitual anger toward another is the attitude of a murderous heart. You see, this word grammatically for anger here is one who is provoked to anger in a, in a habitual way. It is someone who is, is easily angered in life. Like, everything seems to frustrate them. They're always kind of easily ticked off. They easily revert back into this very angry mode if something doesn't go their way. But it also includes people who may not be habitually angry about everything, but they have chosen to hold on to a grudge or to be embittered towards another person. They have chosen, in other words, to not be forgiving of somebody else. So we must understand that the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about isn't just any anger or any initial reaction of anger, but it is a persistent anger. It's an anger that festers, maybe even below the surface. It sort of helps to clarify then, for example, that not all anger is technically murderous anger. We can have an initial reaction of anger, and it might even be sinful, but it may not be murderous. In fact, we can even take it a step further. Jesus himself was angry at times. We can look at God. God is perfectly righteous even in his anger. Jesus, when he went and cleaned house at the temple, he was angry, but he did not sin. As Paul himself would say in Ephesians 4, do not sin in your anger. So it's very possible to be angry and not sin. However, I would highly, I would be willing to bet that most of us in here, that's not the problem for us. We're like, okay, you know, how how much of my anger is righteous? If I look at my own life, I would say, when I'm angry, I'm more angry unrighteously than I am righteously. So Jesus is seeking to establish the kind of anger, a persistent, ongoing uh, resentment towards another person and therefore is guilty of a murderous heart. And the fact is, when we choose to hold on to a spirit of anger towards somebody else, and yes, by the way, it is a choice, when we choose to hold on to and not relinquish this anger towards somebody else, it's very common for us to not just have an initial response or emotion of anger, but we begin to have thoughts and words that accompany that anger. We begin to say and think things that may be demeaning about another person. In fact, if we were to understand what Jesus is talking about in this text when he says, Not only anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. This word for insult is really an expression or a term that that expresses contempt or dislike for somebody. It's an initial reaction of dislike or disdain towards somebody or what somebody did. We might actually have this initial verbal response or thoughtful response that says, you idiot, you numbskull, In other words, we're kind of attacking someone's intelligence, 
like obviously you're doing something really wrong from my perspective because you don't understand as I do. Now we don't actually go through that process and here's the thing about an insult. An insult uh, oftentimes is thoughtless. In this text, what Jesus is getting at, the insult is actually something that flows so readily from our lips without giving any thought to it. It's kind of the, the immediate default words we might use. We don't have to think about it. They just flow. But Jesus drives the point home even further. So not only are you liable to judgment even when you give thoughtless expression to, to or about somebody, but he goes on to say, anyone who says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now this fool, this term fool refers to a more serious attack on somebody. It's not just, it's not just kind of condemning someone's intelligence or saying an offhanded comment that you didn't give it much thought. But here, when you say you fool, Jesus is saying, now you are giving thought. Now you're being thoughtful in the way in which you are demeaning somebody. Now it's no longer the initial emotion of reaction which ultimately leads to kind of some verbal response perhaps or at least thought about somebody or some situation. And now we're starting to give thought to it. Now we're starting to give thoughtful words and expressions of how we feel about that person. And Jesus says, this is the ultimate curse on yourself because what you are doing in this process is that you are not just insulting, but you are condemning someone as having no importance and no value in life. And why this matters so much to God is this. Every single human being is created in the image of God. And because every human being is created in the image of God, therefore they have intrinsic value by God. And when we say that your life is worthless, you are acting like God. And you're saying, you are not worth living. I know you're probably going, I've never even thought through it that way, but Jesus is saying, that's what's coming from the heart. We might say things like this, this world would be so much better. My life would be so much better if you were not in it. Anybody ever felt something similar to that? Have you ever thought that my sphere and my reality would be easier and more joyful perhaps if a particular person was no longer in it? Let's do a show of hands here. I'm just kidding. We won't won't do that. I think what's most alarming about our anger is that although, yes, we can be angry and righteous at the same time, which is probably not the case for most of us, yes, we can be angry, but not necessarily murderous in heart, which, but the, the, the sobering thing, the warning that comes to my mind, what's so um, humbling for me is that how quickly I can go from an initial reaction of anger to a murderous heart. We're not talking about this persistent anger doesn't take days, weeks, or months. It takes 
fractions of a second. It's amazing, though I don't experience the anxiety as much here in Port Angeles, though the summer is coming around. But traffic, and I know I'm just relating a very common everyday reality, but I do struggle. Every time I go to Seattle, I'm reminded once again how grateful I'm at not living in Seattle traffic. Living in LA, oh my goodness. Let's just say I need Jesus in many moments. Just yesterday, in fact, not traffic related, but realizing what's in my own heart, I'm, thank you, Kevin, by the way, he, he had a pity on me and started helping me sand my table that I started last fall. So I finished sanding, brother, just so you know. But in the process of sanding, I'm getting everything just right and I'm getting going. By the way, do you know when you sand, you, what's happening, there's a lot of friction and friction results in heat and when you're going really fast and you're kind of getting distracted, you just start going to town on it and you're just getting in and everything's getting perfect and I'm rubbing, 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 rubbing and all of a sudden my, my hand slips off the paper and streaks along this nice kind of, kind of a sharp edge and it's hot and I wasn't saying thank you Jesus in that moment. But man, all kinds of other thoughts came to my mind and I'm like, and I look around and Josh just happened to be walk up right behind me. I'm like, I'm so grateful I didn't say anything. But I did think it. And how quickly anger can just, in a moment, go from, isn't this such a beautiful day? Thank you God for so much to, you know what? I'm going to destroy this. I'm going to destroy that person. This is gone. And our hearts can quickly go right into a, with a murderous intent. The point that Jesus is trying to help us understand is that we would be a people that would not do, nor say, nor think anything that diminishes the humanity of another person. Kind of in a positive sense here, that we would be quick to show love, not disdain, not hatred. As John will say in 1 John 3, he says, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. And anyone who hates his brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know no murderers have eternal life within them. In fact, Jesus will go on to say, and I won't go into detail with it because we'll get to it later, but in Matthew 5, 43, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and, 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 and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies and, hate, and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, love and pray for those who are the most difficult in your life. You might ask this question, as I did myself this week. How do I know if I am harboring bitterness or I have some sort of resentment in my heart towards somebody? After all, you might even make this conclusion. You know what? I don't, as far as I can tell, I don't have any anger towards anybody. Of course, let me just say this. The next time your spouse, for example, does the same thing, 
and you pick up right where you left off the last episode, that tells you something about where your heart is at. But how do you know if you have harbored a persistent attitude of anger towards somebody? Let me ask you. What thoughts or feelings come to your mind when you think of a certain individual? Do you feel love for them? Are you grateful that they are in your life? Are you thankful for how God is using them for his glory (laughs) to sanctify you? Or do you experience some sort of degree of anxiety? When you think about a certain individual right now in your life that is difficult, do you begin to feel irritated? Are you quick to find fault and criticize them in your mind or even openly to others? Do you feel that your life would be better, maybe even happier, if they were not in it? You see, brothers and sisters, it's very common, it's very easy to think that we're over it, quote-unquote, it's very easy to think that we've, that we've moved on, that we're no longer bothered or troubled by a certain situation or by a certain individual, and then unfortunately we end up, instead of moving on, we actually just stuff it and it just festers and it grows like a cancer. And then when we see that person again, let's just say we don't have thoughts flowing from Jesus. So the question for you and I is, how do we deal with a murderer's heart? How do we come to grips and do real spiritual work with our murderous heart? Well, Jesus gives us a straightforward answer here. And he says, pursue, basically in a sense, pursue reconciliation while you have the opportunity. Pursue reconciliation while you have the opportunity. Listen to what he says here in verses 23 and 24. He says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What is Jesus really getting at here? The way in which you and I overcome or do real spiritual business with our murderous heart is to always and persistently seek restoration or reconciliation. That's what reconciliation is. When he says to go be reconciled to your brother, he's seeking to be restored with a brother or sister. I love the scenarios that Jesus gives here. First of all, he gives the, the scenario of, uh, of worship. We see that in the practice of worship, he's making kind of this, this, this kind of, uh, he's, he's describing it in this way that like in your act of worship, you have this memory, you have this thought, you have this, moment in which 
the Lord kind of brings to mind certain details of your life, certain attitudes towards other people. Now it's interesting that that's when it takes place, but at the same time it's not surprising. Because no doubt when we come to worship, when we come for the purpose of being in the presence of God, it is in the presence of God that the Spirit of God reveals our heart. One of the purposes of coming together and worshiping together is so that we might be refined together. And we come here and as we worship and as we take time amongst amongst many, many other details and activities in our life, we go, God, what do you have to say? And he says, I got this to say. And he brings to mind a certain individual, a certain situation, and you're like, ooh, man, I didn't handle that very well. Or, oh, man, I'm still struggling with my attitude towards a particular person. And so Jesus says this, when, not if, but when these things come to mind, drop whatever you're doing. By the way, I was thinking about doing this sermon at the beginning of service. It's just hard to coordinate with children's church, but... I was going like, we'll just do that at the beginning of service and we'll take time to reconcile before we even begin our worship. Because that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do here. He says, you know what? Before you go do anything else, before you offer your gift, stop what you're doing, drop it, walk away, approach your brother or sister, be reconciled, and then come back and complete your worship. Why? Because authentic worship, genuine worship, uh, non-hypocritical worship can only take place when you deal with unconfessed or known sin in your life. In other words, you cannot say, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, and I hate my brother and sister here. That's why I sit on the other side of the room, maybe. It's hypocritical. You can't say, Jesus, I love you, and at the same time have perpetual and habitual disdain and hatred towards one another. As one pastor put it, he says, God places a higher priority on the heart condition of the giver than he does the gift itself. In other words, what God cares about more is not what you give him, but the fact that you humble yourself in obedience and seek to do the right thing. Because after all, you cannot be right with God unless you are right with your brother or sister. You cannot be filled with joy and experience true freedom if you are unwilling to hold a grudge towards someone in your life. Jesus drives home with another scenario really to emphasize the urgency of reconciliation. Not only in that aspect of our worship, but he says, you know, when you're going to court, be reconciled quickly with your accuser. Come to terms quickly with your accuser lest the opportunity no longer is afforded to you. In other words, what Jesus is getting at, he's, he's not saying, you know what, have this casual, I'll get around to it. If, if it's really convenient, if it just happens to be, you know, everything, the, all the stars align, so to speak, and, and, and God makes such an easy opportunity, then I'll pursue reconciliation. No, he says, pursue reconciliation with great intensity and urgency. 
And even if you don't know if you should or not, it's a good default just to try it anyways, just in case. Because after all, you may not have the same opportunity. After all, you may, and it's not uncommon, some people die and you never are able to reconcile. Or some people may be open to reconciliation, but as bitterness festers for a period of time, their hearts become hardened equally. And no longer do you even have an opportunity to make things right. The fact is, when anger and bitterness go undealt with, when they continue to fester, they will ultimately ruin you and they will lead you to do things that may be irreversible. You know the story of Cain in Genesis chapter four, right? Adam and Eve are already kicked out of the garden because of the rebellion towards God. They begin to have a family or they continue to have a family, whatever it may be. Cain and Abel are born. They're the ones recognized in scripture in Genesis chapter four. They give their sacrifices or their offerings to God. Abel gives his, his first fruits, his best fruits from his herds to God, and Cain gives some fruits. It doesn't say best fruits. It just gives some fruits to God. God accepts Abel's offering. He does not accept Cain's offering. That doesn't sit so well with Cain. Not only, does Cain is, not only is Cain mad at God, but he's jealous and mad at his brother because God accepted his offering and not his own. And what does God tell Cain? Because this doesn't happen in a, a, a one-day span of time. God says, Cain, you must rule over anger. You must deal with it, in other words. You must choose to deal with it because if you do not, it will eat you up and it will lead to actions that you may not be able to reverse. And we know the rest of the story. Eventually, that anger grew like a cancer. It festered in his heart, and he finally even thoughtfully planned the day in which he would take his brother's life. How does someone get to the point of taking such drastic measures? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens because you are unwilling to deal with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. As Robbie Zacharias has famously said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. If we choose to not deal with our anger, It's as Paul says in Ephesians, you give Satan a foothold. You give him a place in which he is able to wreak havoc in your life, continually ruin you and ruin those around you. Let me just say three points of summary, not in closing, but in summary. Don't worry, we're almost done. Let me just say this as a way to say a reminder. You cannot be united with God 
if you are not willing to be united with your brothers and sisters. This is especially in the context talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot be united with God if you are unwilling to be united with your brothers and sisters. Secondly, and I'm learning this continually, it's better to be humble than to be right. It's better to be humble than to be right. Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. In other words, what pleases God most is not that I am justified in my rightness, but that I am loving my neighbor. I'm loving my spouse. I'm loving my church family. I'm loving all those who God has brought into my life. That's what pleases the Lord. Thirdly, bitterness always ends tragically. Unforgiveness always ends tragically. It will always ruin you. Not only physically, if you've ever done a little Google search on how anger affects the body physically, it's pretty dramatic. In fact, if you even look at what happens in the brain when someone is in a fit of anger, the reason why people don't remember details when they're angry is because it's actually killing neurons and actually suppressing any ability to have new memories in your hippocampus. Of course, elevated blood pressure, elevated heart rate, memories go down, metabolism goes down, dry math increases. I mean, Mark, you could just, Mark's not here, but Mark could give us all the the details on that. But anger has a pretty dramatic physiological effect on the body, but it also has a relational effect on the body. Don't you just love being around angry people? They always have so many friends, don't they? No. You see, see, when someone chooses, or if you choose to remain anger and embittered, it's hard not to wear it on your face, first of all. And secondly, no one wants to be around you. And the insidious nature of our anger is this. This is how twisted and insidious and, de- and deceiving it is. We think this. We have this idea in our minds that I'm going to be so angry at this person and they're going to be miserable because I'm angry at them. And the whole time, the most miserable person is you. The most miserable person in the whole situation, the whole scenario is you. And Satan loves you to think that someone is actually miserable when in fact they might have even just moved on and could care less. And yet that eats you up more inside. Because your anger and bitterness towards them isn't working. So let me ask you, because it might be a question that you're asking yourself, what if I pursue reconciliation but the other person doesn't respond? What if I do the right thing? I'm doing my part, but the other person does not respond. Well, that's just it. Your responsibility is to do your part. Paul says in Romans 12, 16 and 18, he says, live in harmony with each other and do all you can to live in peace with everyone. 
See, the ESV translation says this, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, you can't force reconciliation, but you can do your part. And if the other person doesn't respond, that is not your problem. But watch out. Be forewarned, because the natural tendency is when you do the right thing and someone doesn't respond accordingly, what do you want to do? Well, fine. I'm going to be that much more angry with you. I gave you an opportunity to make things right. You didn't act on it. We are forever distant. And all of a sudden, now what you intended to reconcile, you're going right back into, and Satan's having a heyday. So be warned. Do not fall back into bitterness and anger when someone doesn't respond to reconciliation. What happens if I don't reconcile? What happens if I choose to remain embittered or angry towards another person? Well, first of all, you can look at this, the example of Cain. You can see how that played out. Don't think that you're any exception to the rule. But secondly, when we, when, when we think about what happens if we don't choose to do the right thing or follow what Jesus has called us to do, first of all, you may regret because there are irreversible consequences as a result. You may regret not doing the right thing. Secondly, however, it will ruin you. It will destroy you. But thirdly, your relationship with God, your Christian life will be lifeless. You see, some people professing right faith are the most miserable people on the planet. Not because their profession is wrong necessarily, but because they do not have a heart that is softened by the grace of God. And they have chosen to remain embittered towards certain individuals. And instead of forgiving, they are enslaved And it's no wonder why there is no joy on their face. It's no wonder why there is no hope. It's no wonder why people don't want to be around them. I put in the sermon notes a piece of advice. This is something that has aided me uh, numerous times. It makes my whole doctorate program worthwhile because of this. One professor, Zach Eswine, he's over out of Missouri. He said this, Aaron, though he was talking to the class of seven or eight people, but Aaron, always give your third draft response. Always give your third draft response. And it's like, what are you talking about there? Let me just, just unpack that just for a second. The third draft response is basically this. The first draft, when someone offends you, violates you, uh, hurts you, frustrates you, angers you, you want to immediately, obviously, respond in like anger and maybe even one-up in anger. So the first draft response is to kind of basically take them out. You hurt me, watch me hurt you more. Here's what I want to say to you. And then the second draft response is a little more time and thoughtful 
This is the, the fool part of the condemnation. This is where I take the time going, here's how I'm justified in my actions and in my life, and here's why all the things that you're wrong. And so we, it just starts embellishing, and you're just like, and not to mention you're hurt by it, and you've had time to process your hurt, and that in turn makes you want to really prepare a, an amazing, I'm going to win this conversation or argument response. And then the third draft response, ideally, is that you're finally broken before the Lord. And you're saying, God, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? Because initially in the moment, I just want to react in the flesh, but the third draft response is a response of the Spirit. The Spirit of God that resides in you. And so when you respond to somebody or a certain situation, it's not your flesh coming out, but it's the love of Christ pouring out. It served me well. I pray that it will serve you well. Let me close in this way. Worship team, you can come on up again. Let me ask you this question. I have lots of questions, I understand. Let me ask, would God eternally judge a true believer in Christ because of their anger? Would God eternally judge you if you are a true follower in Christ because of your anger? The answer is no. No, he doesn't. You know why? Because he's already loved you so much so that he's placed all your sins, all your violations, all your wrongful, sinful deeds on the cross of Jesus. That's what God has already done. So no, he would not condemn any true follower of Jesus Christ. But let me ask another question in response then. Would a true follower of Jesus harbor bitterness and murderous anger in their hearts toward one another? And the answer is no. No, they wouldn't because anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that no murderers have eternal life within them. So I ask you this question for the sake of personal reflection on the rest of your Mother's Day. Are you aware of any unresolved anger, bitterness, resentment in your heart towards someone else? Is there someone right now in your mind that you have struggled to love? That you've struggled to initiate and show compassion and grace to? If so, may today be the day in which which you reconcile and begin living living in freedom. But this this takes an attitude of surrender. This takes a heart of surrender because you won't do it unless you're willing to surrender all claims and all ambitions on your life 
and give them all to Jesus.